Hi, everybody. My name is Corey. I'm a very grateful and recovering member of the Al-Anon Alateen Worldwide Family Groups. Hi, Corey. Whew. I am very, very nervous. Um, when I got the, the request to speak, Bonnie called me and asked me to speak. I was out of town, and my mother had called, and my mother knows not very much about these programs, but she does know it makes me happy. And so she called me. She said, some woman called you. You've got to call her back. And I said, okay. And so I called Bonnie, and she said, um, I'd like you to come out and speak at the All-Texas Conference. And I said, okay. Um, and then she said, who answered your phone? And I said, well, that would be my mother. And she said, oh. And I said, why? And she said, well, I said who I was, and I wanted you to come to Texas to speak. And she said, you want Corey to come to Texas to speak? And Bonnie said, yes. And my mother, God love her, said, have you heard her? (laughs) So I have no idea what's going to come out of my mouth this evening, but I do know that I I, I want to take an opportunity, first off, to thank Bonnie for calling and asking me to come speak. It's always an honor and a privilege to be asked to share about the Al-Anon program and how it's changed my life. I want to thank my hostess, Donna, who has been incredible. She has just... She touched my heart. She has been wonderful. My husband is here with me, and we have just had a ball, an absolute ball. It's not quite as warm as I was told it was going to be. Um, So thank God I packed a lot. Um, The committee that has has chaired this this conference, I chaired our area conference last year, and I know how much work goes into this kind of convention, and it has been an outstanding convention. So thank all of you who participated. It has been incredible. To the Alateens and the Alateen speakers, I can't talk enough about the Alateens because we don't have Alateen in my, in my district. We have not been successful. We've been willing. We just haven't been successful with that. And so where our Alateens come to our area, and that's where I know our Alateens. And the Alateens here have just absolutely touched me, and I can't wait to go back and take these CDs back to my area and share these Alateens with my Alateens. It's incredible. Um, the other speakers, when I found out who was speaking, I've heard all the other speakers on CD because I listen to a lot of CDs. Maria is one of my heroes in Al-Anon, and I was so excited that she was going to be here. I've met Pauline before. I've listened to Raynell. Um, I've listened to Court. It was just when we found out, I would, when I was asked to come, I called my husband who was in Boston and said, hey, how'd you like to go to Texas next February? And he said, okay. Because anytime I call and ask him if he wants to go someplace, he usually says, okay. Um, and off we go. So it's, we've been looking forward to this to, for a long time, and I'm just thrilled to be here. Um, I think I'm calmed down enough to be able to, to talk now. Um, who? I'm supposed to tell you. Um, what I was like, what happened to me, and what I'm like today. And by doing that, uh, hopefully I'm going to be sharing with you my experience, strength, and hope found in the Al-Anon Alateen program. I got here on September 18, 1998, my two-month wedding anniversary. Um, I had waited 36 years to marry for the first time. I married a raging alcoholic when I did it. I took him to Ireland for a honeymoon, but there was nothing wrong with me when we got here. If only he didn't drink as much, I would be fine. Um, imagine my surprise and my shock when it didn't turn out to be like that. Um, but it, it, it took me a while to get here, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about 
what I was like before I got here um, in, in how I was raised and some of the things that I learned. I am, I am from, by the way, my home group is the Fellowship Al-Anon Family Group in Montgomery, Alabama. I live in Wetumpka, Alabama. I'm not from the South, just in case anybody was wondering. <laughs> I am originally Canadian. My mother is English. My father was Dutch. We spent most of our lives growing up overseas. I did not live anywhere more than three years until I moved to Alabama, and I was only going to be there two, and it's 19 years later. Um, I felt different from the beginning because my father was Dutch, my mother was English. And I, my, brother, my older brother was born in Africa. My older sister and I were born in Canada, and so I never felt like I was like anybody else. Um, and it was not until I heard Maria talk about um, when her little sister was born that was I able to actually identify some other things in my life. I was the youngest of three children for nine and a half years, and then my sister was born. And this is where the very beginning of my ism started popping out, and I don't know any of this until... I got to Al-Anon, and I did the work, and I did the step work, and I was able to start figuring some of this kind of stuff out with the aid of a sponsor. Um, my mind told me, my mind told me that the reason why my parents had my little sister was because I was not enough. I was not smart enough. I was not cute enough. I was not tall enough. I was not enough of something, so they had to have somebody else. Now, nobody in my family ever said that. Nobody to this day has ever said that. That's what my head thought up all by itself. Um, and I was convinced that is why my parents had my little sister. And of course, it does not help that she is five foot six, 110 pounds, cute as can be, bright as all get out. Um, so I still have a little bit of resentment I have to work on, obviously. Um, I, was, I was not exactly the snappiest dresser in the world. Um, my husband said that if he'd seen me dressed the way I was dressed as a kid, he'd push me off a bridge. Um, so I had a lot of self-esteem issues before I, before I even met anybody, in my, anybody that, that may possibly have had a drinking problem. And, and to the best of my knowledge, I did not grow up in a family that had alcoholism. Um, my, I have, um, my father and my mother, being European, brought a lot of things to the table. One of the things they brought to the table was that family was everything. Family was very, very important. You know, you, you, that was it. Um, you're stuck by your family no matter what. And um, that became important to me um, when I finally did decide to marry. Um, when I was 11 years old, my father took a job in Liberia, West Africa. And he sent, um, we all moved over there, and there was no American school, so he sent my older brother, my older sister, and myself to boarding school at the age of 11. And we went to boarding school in Holland because that's where my father's family was. What my mind said to me at the age of 11 was, see, they don't want you anymore. They have her. They don't need you. Um, what I know today is that my parents did what they thought was the very best thing to do, was to send us to a country where we had family. Um, and I know today how difficult that must have been for my mother to send her three oldest children away to boarding school. But at the time, I didn't know that. All I thought about was they must not love me enough. So we go to board. I go to boarding school. My brother and my sister are there. And um, I was 11. I was in a room with four Dutch girls who spoke no English and I who spoke no Dutch. So you can imagine who learned the language first. Um, and I cried myself to sleep for the first three months. And I remember my older sister coming down. She was tickled pink that we were there. Um, she just thought that was just the greatest thing in the world. And um, I remember coming down to my room and saying to me, I understand you've been crying every night. And I thought, oh, finally, my sister, she's going to tell me it's all okay. And she said, this is what I heard. I don't know I don't know if this is actually what she said, but this is what I heard. Because I've discovered since being an Al-Anon, I also have a hearing problem. I don't always hear what is actually said. Um, 
So um, what I heard her say was, you are embarrassing me. Knock it off. If you cry one more time, I'm going to beat the crap out of you. Um, and so I started stuffing feelings. Um, and I started, I started wanting to feel like I fit in. And so I, start, I was the youngest person on campus. I was really goofy. I know you find that hard to believe. Um, but I started trying to fit in. And um, that, that started a pattern for me for my whole life is I would be who you wanted me to be. And if I was with this group, I was going to be with this group one. If I was with this group, I was going to be with that group wanted. Um, and I was going to be peppy and I was going to be enthusiastic. And I was just going to be so yay all the time because I didn't want to feel what I was feeling. Um, my parents moved back to the States and I wanted to come home. And so I came home in the, um, the end of the eighth grade in between the summer of the eighth and ninth grade. And by the time I was in ninth grade in the States for a month, I wanted to move again because I didn't feel like I fit in. And my dad came home and said, we're moving to the Philippines. I was like, yes, where's that? Um, I didn't know where it was. So we, we moved to the Philippines, and that was the first time I was someplace where I didn't have an older sister and an older brother because they both chose to stay at the boarding school. I had a little sister, and she was really annoying by this point. Um, and there was a lot of rivalry going on because she had had my parents' undivided attention for two years. And so there was a lot of sibling rivalry going on there, and I didn't know that's what it was. I just thought she was annoying. Um, we got to the Philippines. Um, I was there two and a half years. I really began to feel like I fit in. I had my own friends. I'd come into my own element. And my dad came home in April and said, we're moving to Singapore. <laughs> I said, okay, um, you know I'm going to be a senior next year. And he said, I understand that we have to move. I said, no, 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 we can't move. I'm going to be a senior. <laughs> we can't move. And he said, we're moving. You know, what I come to find out many, many, many years later is that the reason why we had to move is my father told his, his company wanted him to launder money. And he said, I have a family. I won't jeopardize them like that. And so he put his family before his career, and he picked us up, and he moved us to, the, to Singapore. That's also where... Now, years later, I can see it's the first time that God was, not the first time, but it's the first time I can see it. God's working in my life. Because I got to Singapore at the beginning of my senior year of high school. There were 105 of us that actually graduated in our high school class. And that's the where I met the man that I eventually married. I met my husband, Kent. And um, he was the senior class, he was the student body president. He was the king of the junior senior prom. He was voted most sparkling personality. I won't say what else because he'll get embarrassed. Um, but he, he, was, he was a big man on campus. He'd been there four years. There weren't a lot of them that had been there four years. Um, he, he was just, he was it. And um, I met Kent when I first got there, and we were friends the whole year. I, we, we didn't date. He dated somebody else. I dated somebody else. But I remember vividly the only time we ended up at the same party at the same time was the night we graduated from high school. We graduated from high school on June 10, 1980. I remember every moment of that evening. I remember where we were standing when we ended up in the same room, staring at the bathtub full of beer, saying to each other, I don't really want to be at this party. And there was a, there was a hotel in town. Do not get the wrong idea. Let me finish the story. There was a hotel in town that had a country western band that played um, country western music. There were a bunch of Chinese guys. They, their, favorite song was, their favorite song was Singapore Cowboy. Singapore Cowboy song. And so we went down to the Shangri-La Hotel together, and we, we met up with a couple of people we'd graduated with. There were three couples there. There was a, a woman named uh, Sunny from Texas. Her dad was buying us champagne. We had a wonderful evening. At one point during the night, we were headed to the beach, and we were going down the wrong way on a one-way street. The Singapore police were coming at us. The guy who was driving was the ambassador's son. He was yelling, I have diplomatic immunity. We're yelling, we don't. Keep driving. I remember everything, everything about that evening. My husband has no recollection. 
Not a thing. Not a thing. Not a, not a, should have been a clue. Um, I go off to college. I pick a college because it looks pretty in the pictures. Um, it, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, I met this guy. My first, this, this, this is where, I, now, up until this point, what I remember learning in my family was my grandfather used to tell a story about my grandmother would say to him, if you love me, you'll quit smoking. And my grandfather quit smoking instantly. And he never smoked again for another 65, 70, 80 years. How long was he lived? He'd lived until he was 91. Never smoked again. All right? I thought, ooh, that's a good line to keep. Filed that in the back of my head. Um, I go off to college. I meet this guy, and I always screw this up. My alcoholic friends just roll their eyes and just want to smack me. He used to drink vodka straight up over right on the straight up on the rocks. No, straight up or on the rocks, whatever. He used to drink vodka. I never get it right. I used to, he used to drink vodka. I thought that was so sophisticated. Um, and so, of course, I was in love. Um, I don't date. I just instantly fall in love with you. Um, I have never voluntarily left a relationship ever in my life, um, which gives my husband a little bit of comfort these days or a little bit of pain, depending on the day. Um, <laughs> I have never, ever left a relationship. I am built for endurance, man. I will be there to the bitter end. Um, and this guy left me. Imagine that. Um, he, he, somebody, oh, just, it was just, it was ugly. But that was the first guy. He drank every night. I thought that was very sophisticated. I did not see a problem with that. I never saw a problem with drinking. When I got to college, I had a, a fake ID that said I was 24. The football team thought I was fabulous because I could buy beer. Um, and that was okay. I mean, we never, drinking was not really a big issue. If you, you, we drank with our friends because it was a very small American community overseas, but it wasn't huge drinking problems. I never saw any problems. So I, I you know, I was head over heels in love with this guy, and um, I, because I was so focused on him, I did no schoolwork. And then, of course, the relationship ended, and that was it. I couldn't just stay there because the relationship had ended. So I left, and I, and I transferred colleges down to um, Emory University in Atlanta. And when I got there, they said, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer since I was this big. I have no idea why. I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And they looked at me, and they said, not with these grades you want. I thought, well, okay, fine. And so for the next three years, I did what I, what I knew to do, which was um, put my shoulder to that wheel and, and put all my effort in, into what I was doing, focused strictly on my um, academic work, graduated from, with honors from Emory, and was in law school within two years. Um, yeah, because you know, I'm focused. If I put my attention to it, man, I can get it done. There is no doubt in my mind, and that's the other thing I was taught, you know. If you focus on what you're doing and you put your all in, you can do anything you put your mind to. And so that's what I did. Um, and so, you know, three years of, of college, when you're focused on your grades, you don't spend a lot of time dating, which was good because nobody really wanted to date me anyway. Um, or at least that's my perception of it. So I ended up, I took a year off, I went to law school, and I came to, I, I um, was going to join the Army. Don't ask me why. My husband cringes because he was in the army. He thought, oh, God. Um, but, uh, but they gave me my assignment, and they, they called me, and I thought I was going to go someplace fabulous like Heidelberg or the Pentagon, and they said, um, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. <laughs> and I said, mm, no. And they said, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And I said, mm, no. And my third choice was Fort Hood, Texas. Mm, no. So I'm two, weeks, I'm two weeks before graduation, and all of a sudden I'm unemployed. Now, in law school, you get employed the beginning of your third year of law school. So I've gone through this entire year of law school thinking I've got a job, and now two weeks out, I don't. Um, I've got school loans that are coming due. I ended up um, 
applying for a job in, in Montgomery, Alabama to clerk for a federal judge, and I was only going to do that for two years. And um, this man hired me, and I went to Alabama, and I was going to be there only two years. Well, three and a half years later, I met him. Oh, he was just wonderful. Um, and I met this guy at a uh, charity softball game. So, of course, he's got to be a good guy, right? You're playing charity softball. It's got to be a good game. Good guy. Um, there was free beer. That didn't uh, – that didn't sink into me. And we, after the game, we went to the guy's house. It was a party. And um, he asked for my phone number, which I thought was really sweet that he'd asked for my phone number. And he called me that evening and he said, their party is still going on. Um, I really need to get some sleep so I can go to work in the morning. Can I sleep on your couch? <laughs> and of course, being the good woman that I am, I said, absolutely. And so he came over and he slept on the couch that night. Um, <laughs> It was that night. I'm not real proud of it, but oh well. You know, I'm in love now. Um, and within, within a month, two months, we were living together, and um, I'm really focused on him. You know, I was going to move to Atlanta. Now I'm not. I'm going to stay here. And um, for the next two and a half years, I was completely, absolutely focused on him because what my parents had said to me um, when I turned 21, because my father was Dutch, was, you're 21. You're officially a spinster. I'm like, great, thanks. I mean, every time my father would introduce me, he would say, this is my daughter, Corey. She's a lawyer, but she's single. And I was like, oh, God, i got to have a man. I have to have a man. I am not complete without a man. And suddenly I had this man, and um, this man wanted me, and I was just very excited about that. And so, and I don't voluntarily leave any relationship, and that's really important in this story. Um, so there I was. And, you know, he had, he had that that all alcoholics have, potential. He had potential. Um, he, he, was, he was working um, for Otis Elevator, and the reason he was working for Otis Elevator is because he needed to make a lot of money because that first ex-wife had taken him for everything he had. You know, what a witch she was. Um, and, uh, and he would tell me this. He had a son. He was three years old. His son was three years old, and I wanted children so bad I couldn't stand it. Thank God God did for me what he couldn't do for myself. Um, but nonetheless... Um, so I, I got involved in this relationship, and it was all about him and, and getting him back on his feet financially because she had ruined him financially. And um, being there for him and, and being together because I just knew that if I, was, if, I wasn't, if I was just, if he needed me enough, if he needed me enough, he would ask me to marry him. If he needed me enough, we would be together. Um, and that's really where I got my first introduction to, um, to act where his, somebody else's drinking caused me a problem. I don't know if he's an alcoholic. I will tell you this. Um, the man drank a lot, and the man drank a lot every day. I don't know if he's re in recovery or not. I, I pray every night that he finds the rooms if that's where he's supposed to be. Um, but things got really bad really quickly um, because I'm trying desperately to fix him, and he was trying desperately to fix whatever was going on in him. Um, and, you know, the two of us fixing him didn't make for a happy home, and things started happening in that house um, that I didn't believe in, and I didn't, and I hadn't been raised in, and I didn't know how to handle. But you know, I'm trained as a lawyer, so I know how to argue with you until you roll your eyes back in the back of your head. You're falling down on the floor. You're keeling over, going, "Yeah, you're right. Just shut up." Um, and that's what I would do. I would just, I would, you know, somebody was talking about nag. I mean, I, I've got a friend whose husband used to call her badger woman, and I used to badger, 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 because I knew what was best for him. And if he would just listen to me, everything would be well. Um, and that's where things got really, really bad. Um, 
He, he never physically hit me. Um, but there were holes in the wall. There were doors slammed so that the doorknob went through the, hole, the wall. Um, beer cans were thrown. Um, and, you know, the insanity of that is I thought that if I just talked to him enough, if I just, and it, I like to explain. I don't like to argue because I don't really care what you think. I just want you to agree with me. So I like to explain it to you until you will agree with me. And so I would choose to explain to him a lot about why his drinking was a problem, which surprisingly enough, he was usually drinking when I did it, which didn't go over really well. You know, it never once occurred to me to wait until he wasn't drinking. That thought never crossed my mind because I thought I need to get it when it's fresh in his mind. You know, I'm a woman with seven years of higher education. It never dawned on me that perhaps he's not listening to anything I'm saying. What he's hearing is... Um, and, 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 and I did, I did something incredibly stupid. I thought that if, that, you know, if I loved him, I would give him my gold visa credit card, in which that's what I did. Yeah, I know. Isn't that stupid? Um, it was really stupid. Um, but that's what it took for me. And he, this guy used to do things like call me up in the middle of the night before 4 o'clock in the morning. He'd say, hey, I'm calling to tell you I'm taking $400 out of the bank because I'm at the dog track and I'll forget when I get home. And I thought, oh, isn't he so sweet that he'd call and tell me that? You know, th- this is my insanity. This is where I get nuts. Um, and, and, and it got really, really bad. Um, you know, somebody said to me, if you ever forget where you are, just say, and then it got worse. Um, and then it got worse. Um, what happened one night, what happened was um, we'd gotten a huge fight about something. This, this is one of the great things I did for him because I had no idea that alcoholism was a disease. I, took, I like to take pictures. I took a photograph of his, kid, of his son. He was three years old. He was a gorgeous little kid. He was out in the Lees, fall, had a football. We're in Alabama. Football's all, you know, the God. And so this was a great picture of this kid. Now, I don't do anything small. Five by seven, eight by ten will not get my point across. I blow this photograph up to 16 by 20 poster size. I frame it. I put it on the wall directly across the room from his drinking chair. And I stand in front of it and say to him... If you don't love me enough to quit drinking, perhaps you love your son enough to quit drinking. Surprisingly enough, that did not get him to quit drinking. I didn't know that, but those are the kind of things I did to that man. I, I, I tormented him and tortured him because I was trying to help. What I have learned in Al-Anon is that my help will kill you. Um, my, my help is fatal. I will love them to death. And um, one night, because we'd had this huge fight, and I'm pretty sure it was about the drinking, I don't really remember. What I do remember is he locked himself in the bathroom with a sawed-off shotgun. And he said in the bathroom, he said, I'll just blow my brains out. That'll make you happy, won't it? If I just blow my brains out, everything will be fine. You know, and the insanity of that is I spent an hour and a half explaining to that man why he didn't need to blow his brains out of the bathroom, got him out of the bathroom, and then I just knew it was my fault. If I was just something, if I was tall enough, skinny enough, blonde enough, funny enough, made more money, made less money, if I was something enough he wouldn't feel like he had to kill himself to be with me you know that's that's pretty sick thinking um and what happened in that relationship was um he wanted me to buy the house next door to his parents um i refused and then he said if you love me you'll buy this house and i said i'm not prepared to do that and he said fine and he took off um it was a saturday he came home on sunday morning and said i need space and time I said, take all the space and time you need. This ship just sailed. Um, and I left. And because I don't voluntarily leave anything, I, of course, went back. Um, unfortunately, by the time I'd gotten back, he'd found somebody else. Um, and I was gone, like, I don't know, two hours. Um, <laughs> I mean, 
I was not gone far. Th- this guy had moved. I was living in. I was living and working in Montgomery. He was living and working in Birmingham. I had moved in with him in Birmingham. He'd moved to the north side of Birmingham, and I was commuting an hour and a half to work every day to be with this guy because it was better for me to be with him than to be by myself. I could not stand to be by myself. I had to be with him. So um, that relationship ended, and because I, had, I got the credit card back and because I'm vindictive and vengeful, I made him sign a contract because I'm going to protect my own. Thank you very much. And I made that man pay me $100 every month for three years um, until he paid off his credit card debt with me. And I'm worse than a bank or a loan shark or anything else. And would threaten him, if you don't... If you, if you don't pay this, I'll call your wife, because by this point he'd married, which of course just added fuel to that, I'm not good enough because he never married me, he married her, um, I'd call your wife and tell your wife that you, weren't, you hadn't paid me, and so he paid me and he paid me off, and um, I swore at that point I was never going to date another man who drank, which wasn't an issue for a while because I wasn't dating anybody for a long time. So the next guy that I found was an, active, was an alcoholic who was in recovery, and we didn't actually date, we just had this weird sort of relationship thing that went on, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't really dating. It was just, I was kind of sort of stalking him, maybe. Um, I don't really know exactly what we were doing, but it was not dating. Um, but we were doing something. I don't know what it was. Um, but he was, but he was, he didn't drink. He was, he was a recovering alcoholic. I still had no idea what that meant. Um, and in, um, on February 1st of 1997, I got, a, I got an email from this guy that I had gone to high school with. And this is, an, this is another instance of God working in our lives. In November of 1996, I put a message on our high school electronic bulletin board on the Internet. And I uh, said, so anybody in the class of 80, email me. And I've come to find out later, and I, I have my husband's permission to use his name because, you know, I can't not talk about Kent. And um, Kent had gotten on the Internet for the very, very first time that day. He'd gone, gone to work and said, what, what's his Internet thing? And they said, just type in any word. And he typed in the word Singapore, and like 5,000 messages come up. And um, so he starts scrolling through these messages, and he finds one that says Singapore American School. So he clicks on that and scrolls through a few of those, and he finds anybody from the class of 80, email me. And so he emailed me. And I emailed him back, and then he emailed me again. And then I said, screw this, call me. Um, and that was February 1st, 1997, and I'd had um, – wrist surgery, and so apparently when I typed my phone number in, I typed it in incorrectly. Um, didn't think to tell him where I was. He didn't know if I was married. He had no idea. Now, I will tell you, the only other contact I had with Kent was in 1989. I don't even know if he remembers this or not. I don't know. He says no, he didn't remember this either. Um, I'd gotten nostalgic by myself one night in my apartment and started trying to track down people that I went to high school with, and my friends today call me the most resourceful one because I'm really good at that, um, which may be an issue for me, Maria. I may have some detective skills going on there. But I only use my power for good today. Um, so um, I had tried to track these folks down. I actually ended up finding Kent's parents, and they were in D.C. And they apparently his mother called Kent. Kent was stationed in Panama. I was in the military. Kent called me, said he'd just gotten married. He'd been, you know, we talked for like 10 or 15 minutes. It was from 1989. In um, 1997, I typed my phone number in incorrectly. He spent an hour and a half randomly typing numbers into the phone until he got me. Our first phone call was 11 and a half hours long. Yeah, I like to say we had to marry because we couldn't afford to date. Um, He was in D.C., I was in Montgomery, and we were in the middle of this conversation, and at some point during the conversation, I said to my my husband now, I said, um, I want a man who doesn't drink, and he says, I don't drink much. Okay, that boundary, whoo, you know, and I say, I say, how much is much? 
because I want to know. He said, two or three beers a week. Well, that's really not drinking. You know, so I said, cool. My boundary has just shifted. I had no idea that was what was happening. I did not find out until we got here that during the course of that 11 and a half hour, 11 and a half hour phone call, my husband had 18 beers. <laughs> you know, what do I know? So there was a lot I found out when we got here, um, which I'll share with you, hopefully. Um, and so we, we, you know, we, we hung that. During the middle of the phone call, someplace in the middle of that phone call, I said, uh, I said to him, yeah, 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 but do you want me? And he said, okay. And I said, great. And by the time I hung that phone call, that phone up that morning, I knew this was the man for me. I mean, I hadn't seen him since we graduated from high school, but this was the guy for me. He was working for airlines in D.C. I was working... Um, in Montgomery, he could fly down for free, but he couldn't fly down for free until the end of February. This is February 1st. Um, by Valentine's Day, we knew we were going to get married. We hadn't seen each other, hadn't exchanged pictures, had no idea. Yeah, I know. Isn't that an act of faith? Um, he came down on February 28th, and within, I don't know, three days, my mother said, what's going on with you and Kent? And I said, nothing. And she's like, uh-huh, yeah, okay. Don't tell your father yet. Okay. Um, now, the other thing I had to tell you about something I learned in my family was my mother, the only time I ever heard my, fa- my mother raise her voice to my father, my dad had been drinking scotch or some hard liquor. I'm not sure what it was. He'd gotten in an argument with my sister-in-law to be at the wedding, and my mother said to him, sit down and shut the hell up. I was like, oh, I'd never heard that before. And we got up the next morning, and my father was gone. Yeah, I'm like, where'd he go? Well, I don't know. I'm like, okay. Three days later, my father calls from Canada, and says, I'm in Canada. I'm like, okay. My mother says, are you coming home? Yeah, I'm on my way home. Okay, fine. My dad gets home. My, he says, where's, I don't know, scotch, something, big, huge bottle. Where is it? My mother says, I don't like the way you act when you drank that, so I've poured it out. And my dad said, okay. To the best of my knowledge, he never drank that again. But you see, I have now, I have my grandfather saying, my grandmother saying, if you love me, you'll quit smoking. I have my mother saying to my father, I don't like how you act when you drink that. And my dad says, okay, I won't drink that. So I take those type of in, that type of information in my head into my relationship with my husband. Um, it just, I'm just so embarrassed to say this, but I have to because it's just so me. Um, there, you got me there was nothing wrong with me when I got here, okay? In July, in July, my father calls me and says, I want to know what's going on with you and Kent, because I do not want to have, go through the type of wedding we went through with your sister. My sister had gotten engaged. She'd gotten unengaged. She'd called and said, I want to get married in two weeks. My father said, no. She got married in four weeks. It was just a nightmare planning the wedding. He said, I want to know what's going on with you. Are you and Kent getting married? Um, and I said, yes. He said, okay, what's the date? And I said, okay, May 28th, which was the day before my parents' 40th wedding anniversary. I thought we'd have a nice party the whole weekend long. It would be such a family event. And um, he said, okay, great. So then I, so I, I hang the phone up, and I promptly call Kent and said, hey, how do you feel about getting married on July 28th, uh, no, March 28th? And he says, okay. Um, my husband did not ask me to marry him. I did not ask him to marry me. I just told him we were getting married, and he said, okay. <laughs> I'm not proud of that, but that's just the way it worked in our house. Um, and about 15 minutes later, he calls back and he says, um, you think I ought to get divorced first? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. That might be a good idea. Now, I will tell you, he had, told me that he, he had told me that he had separated from his wife a couple of years earlier. And that part was true. It was just, you know, 
I didn't know at the time, but I know today, and he'll tell you that's part of his alcoholism, is, you know, he just, once he left, that was it, he was done, nothing, no need to do anything else because, you know, he was never going to get married again. And suddenly he was, much to his surprise, um, going to get married, and so we thought maybe we ought to get him divorced. Um, and you call, I'm, I'm good at that, I'm resourceful. And so I started planning a divorce and planning a wedding at the same time. Yeah. Because, you know, I am determined. I am absolutely determined to, to, to do what we need to do. And he said to me about six weeks, eight weeks later, gee, I think maybe we need to move the wedding. I'm really not sure the divorce is going to come through. Um, and I said, well, I'm sure the divorce would come through. But, you know, at that point, my father had been diagnosed. Um, on August 23rd, my father was diagnosed with brain cancer. And they said, if we get him through the six-week treatment on this, then we'll be in a better position to tell you how, you know, how long he's got to survive. Well, my father didn't make it through the six weeks treatment. He died on September 25th, 1997. I will be forever grateful that my father got to meet my husband and that my father and my husband were able to have a relationship and they were able to get along and my husband was able to ask my father for my hand in marriage. That is a gift that I would not have were it not for the program of Al-Anon. Because if it were not for the program of Al-Anon, I'd be very bitter and very angry about that God who had not answered that prayer. Please, God, just let him live. And that's the last time until I came to Al-Anon that I uttered a prayer. Please, God, just let him live. And when my dad passed away, I did not. I thought that God had heard me and said, "Mm, you know, no. You've done enough things in your life that you're just not on the good list, and I'm not going to answer that prayer. What I know today is that God heard that prayer, and he said, Honey, you don't know the whole picture. I've heard your prayer, but I know what's best. And I know today that my father would have been absolutely miserable to have been incapacitated, and I know today that my mother would have killed herself trying to take care of him. And it is a gift and a blessing that my father went the way that he went with no pain, but I did not know that at the time. What I thought at the time was God hated me enough to take my dad. So what that ended up doing was that ended up pushing the, mar- the wedding back until July because we, nobody thought we'd be able to have a wedding on my parents' 40th wedding anniversary. So we pushed that wedding back to July 18, 1998. And um, I just want the record to reflect that the divorce came through on February 18, 1998, and we could have gotten married by March 18, 1998. I had 10 days to spare. Thank you very much. <laughs> because I am good. And so... <laughs> So we got we got married in Mar- we got married in July and um, and throughout the whole course of this the whole time he moved down here in September before we got married and we started living together and I started watching how much he drank and I did not think I had any part in controlling how much he drank but I would not let him buy anything that cost more than six dollars a twelve pack because what's the point you know where it's going anyway um, and so he drank Mad Dog beer for a long time. Yeah, uh, or Red Dog, sorry, Red Dog beer. And um, I knew enough not to give him the gold MasterCard. I gave him the Sitco credit card. Um, And I like to tell this story because when he moved down here, I'd gotten him a job at the fish farm growing fish. Um, my husband was military and did not had not finished his college education. I did not know that at the time. He says, I assumed that he was not a college graduate. I'm here to tell you that he told me he was a college graduate. Um, now, I, something else I found out in recovery. And um, when, when I started watching how much he was drinking, I started getting worried about his drinking, and I really thought that, it, that he had to drink to be with me. I really thought that he had to drink to be with me. And um, in July, the Sitco credit card bill did not come for the first time in 12 years to my house, and I was sure Sitco was out to get me. So I called Sitco, and I t- tell this because this is a prime example of my insanity. 
I called Sitco and I complained that they had not sent me my bill. They asked me the address. I gave them the address. It was the same one they had. And they said, well, send me a replacement bill. So a replacement bill didn't come. So I'm persistent. I call them back. Where's my bill? We've mailed it to you. What are you doing with my bill? I think I must have called them 12 times um, and just pitched a fit about not getting the Sitco bill. July, August, September, never got the Sitco bill. And I was sure Sitco was trying to screw me. Um, now, why I thought that, I have no idea, but it had to have been that. Um, and the night before I got here, I had a, a function I had to go to, and um, we'd gotten in a big fight about how much he was drinking. Oh, when I told him, one night I told him, I said, I'm concerned about how much you're drinking. And he said to me, all right, I'll cut back. And he went from drinking eight or ten beers a night to drinking six a night, and I thought, there you go. He loves me, he'll stop drinking, right? And he cut back, and how powerful am I? I could control his drinking. What I didn't know is what that meant was he was stopping at the Sitco and buying a 12-pack of beer and drinking before he got home. So instead of reducing his beer from six to eight a night, I actually increased it from about 8 to, what, 18 a night. So that's how good I am with his drinking. Um, and so on the night before the night before we got here, I don't know where this thought came to me. We had gotten this huge fight. I left to go to my function. As I was coming back home, the thought hit my head, Al-Anon. I have no idea what Al-Anon is, but that's what thought was in my head. And we got in the bed, and he wasn't talking to me. I wasn't talking to him. And he finally rolled over, and he said, I don't think I can stop drinking without help. Great! What do we do to help? I'm all about helping. I will fix this. What do we need to do? I was thrilled. So we checked my husband into treatment the next day. And when we got to that treatment center, yet another example of my insanity is um, we, we get to the intake nurse, and she starts asking questions. What's your birth to my husband? What's your birthday? And I'm answering. Um, you know, have you ever been to treatment before? No. How many beers a night do you drink? Um, you know, he said he said six. I said eighteen. And she looked at me and she said. Are you his mother? <laughs> I was offended. I was offended. I had just married this man. I was offended. I was a newlywed. Couldn't you see the joy on my face? <laughs> oh, I was, I was livid. I was, had a resentment about that intake nurse for years. I was livid. Um, and the one thing they did was they sent me to the family counselor, and the family counselor took one look at me, sized me right up. I did not know this until later. Um, and she said to me, if you love him, you will go to Al-Anon. And I thought, how dare you suggest to me that I don't love him? I married him. How dare you suggest that to me? And one thing I had said to my husband um, before we got married was I said to him, I will be a widow before I'm a divorcee. And he said, okay. And about, and about three seconds later, he said to me, oh, that means I have to be dead. And I said, yes, it does. And you know what occurred to me? I swear this only occurred to me last month. I would rather wish my husband dead than to be embarrassed about not making my marriage work. How sick is that? I would rather him be dead than anybody think I couldn't make a marriage work. Um, and that occurred to me literally last month, and that's kind of shocking. Um, so I, that was one thing I'd said to him. The other thing I had said to him was, um, I expect you to be psychic. And I expect you to be able to read my mind and know what I want and need. And, you know, that's kind of insane. Um, he readily agreed that he could do that. That's more insanity. But you know, the really crazy thing about that is when he said, I can do that, despite the fact he had displayed no ability whatsoever up until that point to be psychic, I believe that he could now be psychic. <laughs> That's my insanity. I believe what I want to believe when I want to believe it. 
And so he was not reading my mind. It was not going well, as you can imagine. But, you know, we'd always had a good time together. We've always been able to laugh together. And so when he said he needed help, I said, great. And off we went to the treatment center, and they checked him into treatment. And um, she said, if you love him, you'll go to Al-Anon. And I was just, I was appalled that she would think I did not love him. And so I immediately got online and found an online Al-Anon meeting. I will be forever grateful for those folks because they said, get to a meeting tomorrow. And I, okay. And so we got here on September 18th, 1998, our two-month wedding anniversary. And I went to my first Al-Anon meeting the next day. There were three little old ladies in that meeting um, with me. I have no earthly idea what they said, but I can tell you what I heard. What I heard them say was, oh, honey, he'll drink again. They all drink again. But have hope. What? What? How can I have hope if he's going to drink again? And I didn't even think the drinking was a problem. I just thought it was how much he was drinking. If he would just not drink as much, everything would be fine. And when they said he's going to drink again and have hope, I burst into tears. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm mortified. I'm, I'm just, oh, I can't believe it. Um, and so we, that's where we started on this journey. And they, my, the, the family counselor, who is a dear, dear friend of mine and is what I call my local sponsor now, um, every week at family week, she would say to me, have you been to Al-Anon? And I would say, yes. She'd say, what have you learned? And I would tell her. And she'd say, how many meetings did you go to? And she'd make a little note. And I learned really quickly that you got a certificate if you finished the family. And I thought, going to Al-Anon is part of the secret assignment that you have to go to to get the really good certificate in the family recovery. And so I thought that's what she was doing, was I, she was, you know, recording my assignment so I could be the best in family. And so I went every week. Um, and the other thing that this, that this treatment center did was four days into it, my husband was rigorously honest with his counselor. And, um, lucky for me, came home that night and was rigorously honest with me. Um, which he slept like a baby, and I was just, I was up all night um, when he was rigorously honest. It was not his first treatment center, it was his third. He, he, he had not voluntarily left the military with a $25,000 buyout that was sitting in a credit union up in uh, Virginia. He had been asked to leave um, because of his alcoholism. Um, he was not a college graduate. He had dropped out as a junior in order to become um, a paratrooper. And he was, he had just lied about all this stuff, and that was the one thing I'd said to him is, don't ever lie to me. I won't ever lie to you, honey. Um, and I didn't know at the time that when I was asking him not to lie to me, it was like asking a paraplegic to get up and dance a two-step with me because I was asking him to do something he was physically incapable of doing. He was unable to not lie to me at that point in his, in his disease. Um, and so um, they sent him at the treatment center um, to a group called um, Metro. Uh, an AA group, and I absolutely love AA and I absolutely love Al-Anon because I would not have the life I have today were it not for those two programs, but I have a special place in my heart for that AA group. Um, He went to that meeting. They told him to get a sponsor. He got a sponsor. The sponsor said, you be at this meeting an hour before the meeting starts. It started at 8. You be here at 7. You stay an hour afterwards. You stay until 10. And and that's what he did. And we were married two months. And what am I going to do? And by the time we'd gotten here, we had no friends. So it was just us. And um, he, my husband, I love it when he tells us, he says, you know, he'd had the treatment jargon down. And he went in and he said, I'm willing to do 90 meetings in 90 days. And the sponsor said, great. Are you willing to go to a meeting a day for a year? He was like, ooh, okay. And so, and so that's what he did. And he came home and he said, i got to go to a meeting a day for a year. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do? And he's like, well, I think you need to go to Al-Anon. Okay. Um, and that's when my husband began to sponsor me in Al-Anon. Um, because, 
Because what he said was, they're really the same program. You just do what I do, and I'll tell you what they're telling me. And I thought, okay, that's a great idea. Um, and so we, we started on this little journey. And um, we, were, we were two months into the program when, when his sponsor, and I will tell you this, for any of you who are new to Al-Anon and your loved one has picked a sponsor that you don't think is appropriate for your, for your loved one, I didn't like the first three sponsors my husband picked. Um, and I would never have picked a fourth sponsor for him, but my husband has one of the most incredible programs of recovery that I have ever seen. And thank God he didn't come to me and ask me for a suggestion for a sponsor because I would have gotten him drunk so fast it's not even funny. Um, but he picked this sponsor that I did not particularly care for, um, and he didn't, the sponsor didn't particularly care for me. And the, the AA group that he was going to did not particularly care. Didn't, well, they didn't like Al-Anon at all. Um, and they'd had some bad experiences with Al-Anon, and so they told my husband, don't let your wife go to that program. Don't let her go. And my husband, God love him, said, they're not been like that to her. My wife's not been like that. She's having a good time. Um, you know, and so we started doing what his sponsor told us to do. We were supposed to go to conventions. We went to conventions. The first convention I went to was in December of 1998. Mary Pearl and Clancy were the speakers. Um, Mary, yeah, Mary Pearl sat behind me. She overheard Kent and I talking, and I thought she yelled at me because, you know, I have a hearing problem. I thought she yelled at me. I was mortified. I just wanted to sink down. And then my husband heard her story, and I thought, aren't you glad you got me? Um, (laughs) Because I never once, I never once contemplated homicide. I never once contemplated suicide. What I would do is I would lay in my bed to go to sleep at night, and I'd have this little fantasy of where I'd get a near-fatal illness because I'm really a chicken and a coward, and then I'd end up in the hospital bed, and everybody would realize how close I was to death and poor piddle for me, and they would all realize how important I was, and they'd all rush to me and say, oh, we're so sorry, we were so awful to you, but I was not a martyr when I got here. And, um, and then I would be miraculously cured because all those that I loved in my life would realize how special I was. Um, so... So that's the first conference I went to, and I, and I, heard, I heard Mary Pearl talk about sponsorship. And I said, well, how do I get a sponsor? And she said, you need to pray about it. And I thought, well, that's a novel concept. That wouldn't have occurred to me. Um, and, I, you know, I got to this meeting. It was 12 steps. That's 12 steps, 12 days. I'm a smart girl. I don't really need to do these things for me because there's nothing wrong with me. If he would just act right, if he just wouldn't drink as much, I would be fine. Um, and so I, it's, it's hard to get to Al-Anon. It's really hard to stay if there's nothing wrong f- with you because the program of Al-Anon is a solution to a problem for me. It's not a solution for a problem for my husband. It's a solution for a problem for me. Um, and we got, his first sponsor gave us this little sticker that we put on our mirror for the first year of our recovery that said, you are looking at the problem. Um, <laughs> you know, and I thought that was really rather offensive. Um, but turns out to be true. And as we were on our way down to this first conference where, you know, my, hu- my husband, I will tell you this about my husband. My husband um, started with the 82nd Airborne. He went to the 7th Ranger, 1st Ranger Battalion, and he ended up with spe- 7th Special Forces. Okay, my, my husband is, can be mean. He's never been mean to me. My husband, my husband is, is, can be bad, but he's never been mean to me. And my husband, that first year of recovery, worked at Michael's Arts and Crafts because that was the only job he could get, and that was the job his sponsor told him he needed to keep. And so I'm working as a lawyer. We're on our way down to um, the beach for this conference. He's working at Michael's Arts and Crafts, and he says to me, I've given notice. And I said, notice of what? He said, I've quit my job. And all I could think was, oh, my God, we're going to debtor's prison. We need that check. 
We have to have that money because that's my fear of financial insecurity. I'm just sure he's going to take me for everything I've got. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? And I have no idea where this came from, but what came out of my mouth as I'm clutching on that steering wheel was, well, honey, I'm sure you made the right decision for you. In the future, if you make a huge decision with that, like that, I'd really appreciate it if you talk to me about it, but I'm sure you've made the right decision for you. I'm thinking, who is that woman? Where did she come from? I had no idea where that came from. I had no idea I knew that. Um, and, we, and we had a good time at the beach, and we had a wonderful tr- trip. I didn't think anything about it, and we're on the way back home, and we're almost in the exact identical place when my husband says to me, you know what, I've really given this some thought, and I think I'm going to go back and ask for my job back. <coughs> oh, my God, who is that man? Um, I had no idea. Um, but I do know that if I had said to him, you idiot, which was going through my head, how could you possibly quit that job, he would have dug his heels in. Um, and would never have gone back. And that was a lesson for him, and that was a lesson for me. And I was very grateful that people told me when I first got here, things get different before they get better. Um, because things got really, really different in my household. My husband was not a go-out-and-drink kind of guy. My, guy. my husband was the guy who sat in the armchair and drank and drank and drank until he fell asleep because he was so tired from working so hard all day long. Um, it never occurred to me that my husband was passing out every night. I'm a bright girl. And... Um, and, and so all of a sudden, this man who's been pretty much comatose for the first year of our marriage, or the first year of our relationship, suddenly has opinions. And he's got opinions about how to spend, spend the money. Um, and I don't know if anybody else has had this experience, but my husband likes um, early on recovery and, and really not very much at all. He had, he had a thing about retail therapy. And um, if he wasn't feeling real good, then it was, it was a great idea to go out and purchase something, um, which is how we've ended up with three motorcycles. Um, <laughs> and about six cars, because we don't go small in my house. Um, go for the big stuff. And, um, and so I was, I was terrified of this fear of financial insecurity. Things were, they were telling me it would get different before it got better because he suddenly had opinions about where we should go, what we should do, um, how we should spend our money, and I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified about where this money was going to go. And we, had a, we, start, we, we developed a three-year plan, and I'm very proud to tell you by September of this year, our three-year plan will be complete. Um, it's only taken us nine years, and that's okay today. If you had told me three years, if you told me, if you told me then it would take my three-year plan would take nine years, I would have run screaming into the night because I was terrified. Um, but that's how good my God is to me. And um, and so it got different. He started having opinions, and we started doing stuff. And my husband does not do anything in small measure, and he was didn't start running because that's what he used to do, and he was only going to run two miles a day three times a week, and within three weeks we, we were training for a marathon. And Yeah, I know. Yeah, imagine my surprise. And so well, I'm out there being supported because, you know, I have read that fifth tradition. We support and encourage the alcoholic. He wants to run a marathon. I'm going to be supportive. So I'm out there. We bought me a $79 Walmart bike. He's running. I'm riding the bike. And we're blah, 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 blah. And my husband still sponsored me by this point. You know, he is still telling me what I need to be doing. Yeah, I know. It was awful. Um, and we got to a point where we, I don't know, we have four or five miles out, and he's just in my ear. You need to do. You need to do. You need to do. You need to do. And I just looked at him, and I just took off on that bike. And he's just like... What did I say? You know, and I'm just gone. And there was a woman who had come from Oklahoma. Her husband was at the um, the World War Air College, the War Air College in Montgomery, and come for a year. And she had come to a meeting, and she hadn't been at the meeting very long. And I remember I hadn't worked a darn step, but I do remember um, we were talking about the 12th step, um, which um, 
having had a spiritual awakening, um, we tried to carry we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Of course, I'd not worked step one, and I was sharing about how you know I just like to share that I was trying to share the message, and she looked at me from across this room, this woman I'd never met before, and she said to me, "Honey, you are not sharing the message. You are spreading the disease." And then I heard her say, "Shut up." Now, I know today that she did not say that, but that's what I heard. And I just, it just crushed me. She hurt my feelings. I was crying. Um, I, you know, the first meeting I chaired, I chaired out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous because I did not know that was not conference-proved literature. And the group that I was in, five people told me within three minutes it was not conference-proved literature. So I was in tears that night as well. Um, and I came home. And um, so, you know, I, 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 I was on the bike. I'd gotten to the house. I picked the woman up. I called Luana up. And I said, will you be my sponsor? And she said, why? And I said, because I'm fixing to kill him. And she said, no, honey, why me? And I thought, oh. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and because she, she had that sparkle, she had that joy, she had that peace, she had that serenity. Um, and because she was willing to hurt my feelings because she loved this program enough. Um, and that's something I will always be grateful for. And so this woman started taking me through the steps. And this is another way my God works. Her husband was supposed to be at the Air War College for a year. Turns out he was there two years, and I firmly believe it was because um, my God knew that she needed to get me through all those steps. And so we went through those 12 steps, and she told me that I would do service work. Um, and she sent me to area assembly with her, and we went to district meetings, and I became a GR, and I became a DR. And um, things started getting better in our house. And I was working at a job that I literally, I could have run naked through the halls at least three times before they decided to talk to me about that particular issue. I never did it, but that's what I could have done because, you know, when you're somebody like me who needs gets all of her validation from her employment, they really like you because you'll do an awful lot for a little bit of money. Um, and I started working this program to the best of my ability, and I knew I couldn't work the kind of program I wanted to work in that job. And so I started talking to Luan about it, and we started praying about it, and I started doing the footwork. And um, the fellow that I had come to Montgomery to work for that first year, 1988, that judge that I worked for called me up and said, my secretary's retiring and I want to hire a staff attorney or a law clerk instead of another secretary. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, I really am interested um, because, you know, I like to research. I don't like to argue. I like to research. And what better way to research and to explain than in an official judicial opinion? Oh, it's a God. It's a great job. It's a great job. I just have to explain all day long. It's fabulous. Um, and so I talked to my husband about it because it was going to be a pay cut, and I was going to lose a I was going to lose a credit card, and I was going to lose a um, car, and we were going to have to pick this up. And at this point, my husband decided he wanted to go back to school, and so he he went back to school, and he had been working on his undergraduate degree, and um, he may have been close. I don't think he'd finished yet. And so we made a decision that financially that, that I would take this other job. I'd leave the job that I was in because my recovery was more important than the money. And that's the first time I ever put anything above money. And I took that job. When I was at that job about two, three months when my boss came to me and he said, you know what I've just discovered? <laughs> I can give you more money. Can't give you anything else, but I can give you more money. Would you like some more money? I was like, yeah, that'd be cool. Um, and so he gave me some more money. And I've been at that job ever since. And it has just been an absolute blessing. And so we started traveling this journey, and we got, because Kent was back in school, he couldn't go to his regular home group meeting, um, and so we switched home, he switched home groups, and we found a group that had AA and Al-Anon at the same place, and that, that group started with five of us, and um, the Al-Anon group started with five, and the AA group, I don't know, had maybe 20 in it, and um, 
that's where we started meeting people and we started getting involved in the fellowship because for the first two years it was just about doing doing the deal and just being together and being being in recovery and figuring out what what kind of life we wanted to have and we started doing stuff with people in recovery and I'd never had a girlfriend before that I had ever been honest with and I have some of the most incredible girlfriends in the world today all because of this program and um, we, we started hanging out with couples in recovery, and we didn't have any – we who had no friends when we got here suddenly have friends coming out the ears, and what a fabulous thing that is. And we'd go to hockey games, and we'd go to football games, and we'd just start doing things. And um, then we outgrew the church that we were in, and um, we moved to another church, and the Al-Anon group grew, and the Al-Anon group grew, and the AA group grew, and that group that, – that, that AA group that told my husband, don't let your wife go to Al-Anon, called him one day and said – We've got a newcomer. His sponsor, first sponsor, second sponsor called and said, "We got a newcomer over here. His wife really needs Al-Anon. Do you think your wife would talk to her?" You know, that's a blessing because that's a group that didn't want anybody to have anything to do with Al-Anon. And we started getting involved, and I started getting involved, and I was told I had to go to all this stuff, and um, I was told I had to go to a uh, my, my brother-in-law passed away in 2003, I guess, and. Um, I, it was the weekend of area assembly elections, and my sponsor said, you got to go and you got to stand. I said, i gotta, I got to do this family thing. And she said, okay, you do the family thing. You tell them that you're willing to stand. And I said, about six months before that, somebody had said to me, you going to stand? I said, yeah. He said, what are you going to stand for? I said, I don't care. I'll be anything. I just don't want to be treasurer. Don't ever say that. Because, <laughs> you know, I went off to this funeral in Southern California, and they called me after the wake and said, just wanted to let you know, congratulations, you're our area treasurer. Like, <laughs> that was the one I didn't want to be. Um, and that's the way God works in my life. Um, he gives me opportunities to do things I don't really want to do that get me out of my comfort zone so that I can do them and I can start figuring out that, you know, I can do some of the stuff I was afraid of doing. And I was able to go to that, to go to that funeral with my, with my um, mother as my sister's husband, and we were able to be the kind of uh, family members my sister needed. Now, it was not the kind of sister I wanted to be, but it was the kind of sister my sister needed me to be, and that was huge, and it was because of this program. And about that time, Luana had moved back to, um, they moved her up to D.C., and I had to make a decision about whether or not, she told me I needed to get a local sponsor, I needed to have somebody in, in Montgomery to sponsor me, and I said, okay, but can I still call you? And she said, yeah. And so for about three or four months there, I was doing the juggle thing. You know, I really wasn't using Luana as a sponsor because I was supposed to have somebody in Montgomery, and I'd ask, I'd ask that family counselor treatment, that family um treatment counselor who had since retired and was now coming to Allen on a regular basis, Martha, to be my sponsor. And I really wasn't using her as a sponsor because I still really felt connected to Luana. So I called, I called Luana up and I said, I really need to talk to you. I really would like you to be my long-distance sponsor. And she said, okay, you need to talk to Martha about that. So I talked to Martha about that. And that's what's worked for me is I use Luana as my long-distance sponsor. And I have Martha, who's my local sponsor. And I'm accountable to Martha to show up at meetings because otherwise, you know, I would just sit on my couch, eat bonbons, play with my dogs, read books, and not do anything. Um, and, you know, I'm real grateful that Luana said to me, um, you know, honey, I don't really care how you feel. What are you willing to do? Um, because uh, my, feelings are, my feelings are fickle, and if I only act on my feelings, man, I'm going to be bouncing all over the place. We call it pinging in Montgomery. I'll just ping all over the place. Um, and so I don't act on my feelings today, but I didn't know that. Um, what, I, what I do today is I take the action and the feelings come. What I've learned in Al-Anon is I cannot think my way into healthy uh, thoughts. I cannot think my way into thinking better. I cannot think my way into feeling better. The only way I think and feel better is when I take the action and I look back on it and say, oh, wow, okay, I get it. Um, and that's been real important to me because, you know, I was the kind of person that if I didn't get what I wanted right when I wanted it, um, I wasn't going to do it again. I made a decision. If it didn't feel good right that very second, I made another decision. I was just jumping from decision to decision to decision to decision, and I was really 
busy. I was really busy. Um, and I started, I started taking a good, hard look at, at me and who I was and, and the kind of woman that I was. And I heard a speaker say, you know, do you have a vision of that woman that you want to be? And it never occurred to me to have a vision of that woman that I wanted to be. And I started thinking about that kind of woman that I wanted to be. And I found that woman that I wanted to be in these rooms. I found that woman that I wanted to be in the rooms of AA. Those women, the women in my home group, the women in Al-Anon, the women I see at conferences, at conventions, um, those are the kind of women I want to be. Um, and I started, I started doing the kind of stuff I needed to do. And um, they said to me um, that I needed to find a, a God of my understanding. And I told you how I felt about God, and I wasn't real sure about that whole God thing. And I wasn't going to do a step three because I was pretty sure that God hated me and was trying to kill me. And, um, and I started borrowing people's gods in, in the program. And um, a woman that, who is one of my very best friends in the whole wide world, Sarah lost her mother right about the same time I lost my dad. And she was talking about her God. And I started borrowing Sarah's God. And, and I have a God today who just absolutely adores me. He wants me to be happy, joyous, and free. And I know that with every fiber of my being. And I would not have known that without you folks here. And for that, I am so very, very grateful. Because I have the kind of life today I always wanted to have, never knew how to get, because I was trying to get it, um, and never really, never really believed it would happen for me. I never thought, it might happen for you, but it would not happen for me. And um, I will tell you, the last, um, the last couple of years have been really difficult, but they have not been painful. And that's a really huge thing for me, because there's been an incredible amount of joy in my life. And um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what's happened in the past 18 months, because um, I, I do this thing, and I got it from a speaker, my friend Kathy. I had the privilege of meeting Kathy last year, and she's another one of my Al-Anon heroes. She's from Cincinnati. And she had talked about doing a little list of those things that, you know, they're just thinking about for the next year. I wonder how this is going to be. I wonder how that's going to be. And I started doing that, and, and I put that away, and then I pulled that list out, and I think, oh, how'd that turn out? That turned out good. Oh, that didn't turn out so good, but that's okay. You know, and we started, I started doing that, and then I, pick, I started, my sponsor said, you know, you need to pick a word. Pick, pick a word that you're going to focus on for a year. And... Um, a couple of years ago, I picked the word action, that I needed to take action, and I needed to do some things, and I needed to get more involved um, in my own recovery, and I needed to do some more studying. And um, in November of 2004, my husband came to me, and he said, I really have this feeling that I think I need to. They were looking for some IT guys. In um, This is the guy that worked for Michael's Arts and Crafts. My husband today is a college graduate. My husband today has a master's degree. My husband today has an incredible career. And I'm so very, very proud of him. And I thank AA for giving that to him. And I thank AA for giving me the kind of husband that I always wanted to have because he learned how to be a husband in the rooms of AA. And that's just a miracle to me. It is absolutely a miracle to me. But anyway, he came to me and he said, I really feel compelled to apply for these jobs in Iraq because I think I could be of service over there. And I was like, I don't want him going to Iraq. I know he's got a gun, but I don't want him to go to Iraq. They shoot people like you. Um, and I didn't want him to go. But, you know, I knew enough to say, I am sure you will make the right decision. We'll, you know, we'll give that to God. You do what you need to do. And so he started applying for jobs, and I started putting that in the God box. Um, and I was just, I give this to you, God. I give this to you, God. I give this to you, God. And um, that was in November of 2004. And in May of 2005, um, the BRAC realignment, the base realignment list came out, and my husband's base was on the list. And um, I'd been in Montgomery 18 years. I've been working for that same judge. Um, for the, It'll be seven years next month. And um, I love my job, and I love what I do, and I love the man that I work for. And um, he, my husband came to me, and he said, um, we may have to move. And I said, 
Okay. Um, because the fifth tradition says, I support and love and encourage my husband. And I'd had a career, and I'm good at my career, and I was okay with letting him have his career. And um, so he started doing the paperwork, and they started talking about moving to Boston. Of course, I'm looking at houses going, ew, ew, it's going to be a problem. Um, you know, how expensive it is. And about two weeks after they told him we were going to move, he got an offer, for, or he got emailed and said, are you still willing to go to Iraq? And he talked it over with his sponsor, and he talked it over with a couple people in his office, and he came home, and he said, they've made me an offer to go to Iraq, but I've decided not to take it because I really think I need to be here because I don't know what our career, what my career holds for me, and I don't know what the basis realignment's going to do. You know, I didn't have to do a darn thing. God took care of that just fine without my help, and that was a real blessing. And so we spent the summer not knowing where we were going to go. You know, he's applying for jobs in Alaska and Arizona, and I'm thinking, you know, Maxwell, it's like two blocks. You know, he's got all these plans, and turns out, you know, the day, the day of the... Um, of the, the hearings for the realignment, my boss and I are sitting, you know, sitting right there in front of the TV all day long watching the reassignments. And the very, very, very last thing they did was they decided not to move my husband's base. I was like, oh, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you. I was willing to go, but I didn't have to go. And so they told him that they were going to send him to Boston for um, 90 days. Now, those of you who know the military know that 90 days really isn't 90 days, but we figured 120 days. They sent my husband to Boston in January last year, and he came home in July. He was gone seven months. And um, about that time, I knew that I was going to have to get really involved in my program. because, And because I have a sponsor whose husband is in the military, she had said to me, you be very, very careful that you do not pick a fight with him the afternoon before he has to go back. It will make it easier for you if you've had a fight to let him go, but you don't get to do that. And so I worked really, really hard because I really did want to pick a fight with him because it would be easier to let him go, you know, go to Boston for a couple of weeks. I don't care. I don't want you to the house anyway. Go. Just go. 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 Um, but that was, not, that was not the kind of wife that I wanted to be. That was not the kind of woman that I wanted to be. And I've gotten to the point where I want to be that woman that I know that God created me to be, that he calls me to be, and he challenges me to be. Um, and my prayer every morning is to be that woman and to help me be willing to be that woman. Um, and so he went off to Boston, and we started, I was planning a convention, our convention, we started doing a lot of, I started getting real involved, and I have a sponsee who really wanted to dig a little deeper, so we started going through the 12 and 12, the AA 12 and 12, um, and we did that every month, um, for a year, and that was just, it was incredible. It was just one of the most fascinating experiences. Um, and my boss's wife, my boss's wife was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2002. Um, was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2002, and um, she's been undergoing treatment, and she'd been, she was clean for about a year, and, and then she had some more reoccurrences. And um, Last year when Kent was in uh, Boston, um, it came back, well, it'd come back a couple, year, a couple years beforehand, but they started going through some experimental treatment and doing some things. And um, about this time, I heard a tape of Maria who was saying that she was going to try something. She was, you know, she was going to give a shot doing something she'd always, she never thought she'd do. And about this time, an opportunity came open for me to be considered to be a federal judge. And um, I wasn't going to do it because I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I was smart enough. I didn't think I was good enough. I didn't think they'd, they'd consider me for it, and I wasn't going to apply for it. And um, my husband said to me, you need to at least apply. You need to at least do the footwork. My sponsor said to me, you need to at least do the footwork. And, you know, that was an incredible experience for me because I found out one more time why I need this program so much. And I practiced these principles in that application process. I practiced these principles in the interview process. And I, I didn't tell a whole lot of people what I was doing, and I just asked them 
to pray for God's will to be done for me. Just pray for God's will to be done for me. And they agreed to do that. And um, I got interviewed for the, my, my boss sent me an email when we were in Scotland with my mother saying, your interview is next Tuesday. I'm like, ah, I got an interview, I got an interview. Um, and um, I remember somebody telling me, our job is to walk in the direction of our dreams. Where we end up is up to God. And I was willing to walk in the direction of my dreams, but I was willing to let God make a decision about the outcome. And in September, I found out that I was this close to being a federal judge. Um, and, but that was not where God needed me to be. And I was really, really okay with that because um, things have gotten really bad for my judge's wife. And I've known these, this, this couple for 20-some-odd years. Uh, every 20 years next year and um, I knew he needed me to be where I was so that he could be where he needed to be and I started praying the St. Francis prayer during this process I started praying um, that God let me be of service and to put me where he needed me to be and to use me however he needed me to use me and I, ha- I have been able to be of service to my boss so that he can be with his wife and about a week and a half ago um, one of the other judges in my building came to me and said um, do you have to go to this thing in Texas? And I said, yeah, I have to go to this thing in Texas. I'm committed to go to this thing in Texas. I'm going to go. And she said, okay. She said, what are you going to do if something happens when you're gone? And I said, well, God's in charge of that. And um, we left on Thursday morning, and I got an email from my boss on Friday afternoon that his wife is now with hospice. And I don't know if she'll be alive when I get home. I don't know if I'll get a chance to see her. But I do know that God's will for me was for me to be here this weekend to tell you that although it's not always what you want to do, God's will is always what it's supposed to be. And I have been able to be of service to my boss, and I will be able to be of service to my boss again. And I will be exactly where God wants me to be. And because I have this program, and because I have been blessed enough to do the work in this program, and because you've been so kind to give me a kind and loving God who only wants what's best for me and for those that I love and care about, I can stand up here and say to you with not a single qualm in my body, I believe with every fiber in my body, I am exactly where God wants me to be. And I am so blessed to have that knowledge. I have such peace and serenity about that. And I have to tell you, I have the most incredible life today. I have a husband who adores me, and I adore him. He is my best friend in the entire world. I would not have that without AA and Al-Anon. I have girlfriends in this program who think I'm just the cutest thing since sliced bread. They still take me shopping because they don't trust me by myself, which is a good thing. Um, but I would never have had. I would never have had um, girlfriends without this program. I have people in my life who want me to be happy, joyous, and free. And I have a God in my life who wants me to be happy, joyous, and free. And because of people like you and rooms like this and those who've gone before us, I can stand before you today and say, I am happy, joyous, and free. And thank you so very, very much for that gift.